Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. I'm Stephanie Carvin, and in this episode, we'll be having a look at recent developments related to the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, or CSIS. On Tuesday, February 9th, the CSIS director, David Vigneault, gave an important speech at the Centre for International Governance Innovation, or CG. In it, he discusses the evolving national security threat environment. So I sit down with Jess Davis to discuss what we thought of it. Next, I sit down with Leah West and the long-lost Craig Forces to go over two recent federal court decisions in relation to CSIS's authorities to collect foreign intelligence. What does all this have in common? Well, as the service itself has said many times, the CSIS Act, which originated in 1984, is showing its age in the wake of evolving threats. However, as we discuss on this podcast, fixing this problem is going to be fraught with difficulties. So can we? Let's begin. So Jess, I'm glad you can join me today. It is Tuesday, February 9th. It is uh, almost four o'clock and we heard the director's speech. And I was just thinking we could go through some of the elements of the speech, some of the big takeaways that you think. And so I'll, I'll throw it open to you. What, what did you think? Well, the first thing that struck me is that the speech wasn't a huge departure from what we've heard from the director over the last number of years in terms of the annual report and his last speech, there's a continuing concern about economic security and espionage and state-influenced activities that's becoming more and more prominent in a lot of these public statements. So that was a very strong continuation. The other thing, though, that struck me, too, was the move away from a conversation around Al-Qaeda or Islamic State-inspired terrorism towards ideologically motivated violent extremism. And again, we saw that in the annual report this year very strongly, but very little mention in this speech of those more traditional threats. And so I thought that was very interesting. In fact, he mentioned the number of people who were killed and injured in ideologically motivated violent extremist activity. Uh, and that was a, a very good and very important bookmark or benchmark in terms of what we're talking about around this. And the last thing that I'll say was really about the response to a lot of these threats. So clearly in the violent extremism space, we're still talking mostly about our traditional counterterrorism, countering violent extremism responses. But in the espionage and foreign influenced activity space, we're looking at other tools like increased use of the Investment Canada Act and partnerships, which was a major theme of the conversation. What did you take away from it? Yeah, I mean, I think a bit similar. I, I did actually think, I, I agree with you, there is this continuation. And, and hearing you speak, I actually wonder if this is, in some ways, I think CSIS is actually ahead of where the national conversation is about national security. I think the national security conversation is still very much focused on quote unquote terrorist threats, particularly from AQ and IS. And I think really since 2018, we've had this service bang the drum about economic national security. And in particular, in 2018, the director did give that kind of landmark speech at the Economic Club of Canada, where he said that espionage and foreign influence is the number one national security threat. And, and he described terrorism as the number one public safety threat. So it's, it's interesting that, they've, that they're now distinguishing between those two things, suggesting traditionally in the national security space, when you say public safety, it almost conjures up more police kinds of operations, not necessarily national security. So yeah, I agree with you. There's that thread. 
but the speech itself had a lot more detail. To me, the most important detail was really the examples that were used in the first case. So talking about AI, quantum, ocean technologies and aerospace technologies being countered. And in addition, I think this is the first time the anyone from a national security agency has confirmed that the Zenhua data technology hack or leak that came out in September of 2020 was actually partially based on hacked data, 20%. And so that I think was pretty significant too. And in naming these threats uh, or providing these examples, he actually names the countries doing them, which is China and Russia. And I'm trying to think the last time a director actually said those words in a public security forum. I, there, he may have, have alluded to it, at least in terms of talking to parliament and parliamentary speeches, but this is a speech to a larger audience and saying these kinds of things. I think the service was trying to drum up a lot of attention for this particular speech to say the C word and the R word is significant. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with a lot of that. And when we're talking about some of those details, I think some of the things that struck me too were those details. So talking about human and cyber enabled espionage, very specific, very getting almost a little bit technical here in terms of what we're really talking about. And again, those sectors that are being targeted, so biopharma, health, AI, quantum, have all been mentioned before. I'm certain this is the first time that ocean technology has been mentioned. Yeah, me too. And I'm almost certain it's actually the first time that aerospace has also been specifically mentioned. May have been in a public report, but... Uh, but it's not a lot. The other ones have been exactly. a number of times. So we're starting to get a little bit more detail on that. And to me, I think that speaks to this the threat, like that these sectors have to be publicly named for them to understand that they're being targeted and they're the ones that our adversaries are interested in. And then just to go back to this conversation about national security versus public safety, I think it's the terrorism threat is so much easier to report on. It's so much more day-to-day impactful. So it's so much easier, I think, for that to capture the imagination of Canadians when we're talking about national security. Talking about a cyber threat or an espionage threat or an economic security threat that doesn't get is the impact of which isn't going to be felt for 10, 15, 50 years is really difficult to report on and for Canadians to really get seized with. So I think really emphasizing that and talking about that in terms of strategic threats is so interesting and so important. I, I agree. And we're, we're here in radical agreement. <laughs> and, and maybe this isn't the best podcast material, but I think that's right. And I think this plays into one of the major themes that the director spoke to at the end, which is about non-traditional partners, right? Working with academia, working with those industries that are in the supply chain. So when you say things like, hey, ocean technologies and aerospace and, and biopharma, I think that what that does is there's clearly a target audience here, which is, hey, you person who've never thought that you're actually going to be a national security target, you are, and we want to work with you. Now, there's a whole lot of questions we can ask about that, like how is this being done and and all things like that. But it's just, I think what we're trying to focus on here is the audience that the director is actually trying to speak to. And for years and years and years, CISA sat on Intelligence Mountain, right? And did not want to talk about these things. And now here's the director waving giant flag saying, this is a threat and you have to think about it. And I actually think this plays in well to what you just said. Terrorism kind of speaks for itself. There's a a message there and it's being delivered. And as soon as there's any kind of incident in Canada, there's this reporting. If there's a cyber hack in Canada, it probably makes news for a day or two. 
And then it disappears. I think maybe an exception to this is some of the questions around Nortel and things like that, that have never really been fully resolved. But yeah, I think that's exactly it. Like this, the kind of threats that we're now seeing, which are perhaps in some ways the most urgent, or at least that's what you can take away from this, are the ones that are in a lot of ways the hardest to describe. And you have to take a certain risk in order to describe it. Yeah. And the last thing I want to say is on that partnership issue too, the director really went into a lot of detail about the insider threat issue. And I think that was really interesting. We're trying to, I think, hammer home the point to a lot of these industries about what insider threat can look like, how it can happen, how data can get exfiltrated. I think I remember him mentioning something about a, a USB drive. So like some very specific ideas and examples about what that looks like to try to raise people's awareness, I think, about this very real problem. And when you look particularly at the US and the number of insider threat and espionage cases that they've had, I think it's important for us to extend that information into Canada and, ex and expect that's the kind of thing that we're seeing here in Canada, even if the director can't necessarily speak about specific cases. Is there anything that you thought was maybe missing from the speech that you would have liked to have heard more of? You know, going forward? The only thing that I think was really missing from the speech, again, was in that partnership space. So while I think it's very good and important that CSIS is moving into partnerships with the private sector and universities and that kind of thing and trying to develop partnerships, I have some concerns in terms of privacy, adherence to the CSIS Act, information sharing, and like what the governance structure around that looks like. I think that's a place where hopefully we can see some more information or at the very least where our review agencies can have a close look to make sure that's happening within the, the structure that it should be happening in because there's a lot of potential for problems. Yeah, it is interesting in the sense that a lot of the controversy around CSIS has been like, are, are they going to these meetings about providing information on environmental activists? CERC investigated this. CERC no longer exists, of course, the Security Intelligence Review Agency, which has now been replaced by the National Security Intelligence Review Agency. But yeah, there was concern about meeting between the private sector and the, the intelligence services and in what kind of information is being shared. Yeah. And I mean, if it, I think that this is the exactly the kinds of things that you want to have your review agencies looking at, and maybe we do need to think about authorities here. Authorities is something we'll look at another section of the podcast, but that was also a part of the speech. But it, it's interesting that you brought that up. Was anything missing for you? It, it's interesting now, like in some ways for years, I was kind of cringing at the fact that the service did not want to name some of the threat actors that we saw in terms of China and Russia in particular. When, when you would read these reports, they'd be like, well, there are certain countries that just happen to be investing in certain strategic sectors and that's bad. And it was very vague. And now when I see China and Russia, like in some ways I'm happy because I feel in a lot of ways that we're talking to the Canadian people like adults. And I was thinking well, maybe this is one area where the review agencies have really helped. Like in particular, the National Security Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians has released a number of reports specifically naming China and Russia in, in their reports. And I think that provides the kind of political cover for then CSIS then to say, yes, okay, it's China and Russia, because now politicians have done this. The people elected to run the country have done this, and you're not creating foreign policy in, in some ways when you do this. That said, in some ways, I'm like, 
is it only Russia in China? Are there other countries here that, that we should be thinking about as well? And I think this might be the next phase is to think about other countries that might be engaged. There's been allegations, for example, of clandestine foreign influence made against India for a, a long time in this country. There was a story just this past weekend in the Toronto Star about how Saudi Arabia may have sent different kill teams to go after one of their former intelligence officials here in Canada. And, you know, Canadians don't seem to mind that much, <laughs> that much of an outrage about it. So I wonder if this is going to be the next stage is to perhaps take a slightly broader view of who some of these threats are. I, I have to say I wasn't too disappointed. I think the service did really push itself in, in making the speech. I don't want to just be congratulating the service and patting it on the back. That, that makes for a boring podcast. But for those of us who've been there and know how much the service does not like being in the media, being in the spotlight, and really has suffered a lot in its communication of these threats. I really do believe that it was a good speech that hopefully will communicate to Canadians and businesses and academics who, who may be targeted just what, what is at stake with this kind of wider understanding of what national security actually is. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for you know anybody who might be a little bit disappointed that there wasn't a lot of fireworks in that speech, I think you know, it's important to remember that this is an incremental process of increased baby steps. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like it's, it's slow, but sure of sharing more information, being a little bit more transparent. You don't get everything the first time at the gate. Or the second, or maybe or the, the third, third. maybe the 10th. We'll go for the 10, 10 years from now, we'll still be doing a productive podcast and be like, Hey, remember those other speeches? Jess, thank you for this quick hit. I appreciate that in terms of just your thoughts. It seems like we were aligned in a lot of our thinking. And yeah, we'll see how this is received. So thanks for your time. My pleasure. And now to look at the other aspects of the speech, particularly with regards to uh, CSIS's authorities and two recent federal court decisions, I'm very happy to have on the podcast, Leah West, and welcoming back one of our founding members, the one, the only Craig Forces, to give us some very non-political comments about these recent developments involving a section of the CSIS Act we don't talk about very often, that is section 16s and foreign intelligence. Craig, welcome back. Yeah, thanks uh, very much, Steph. And, and just to be clear here, I'm just making my little uh, guest appearance in my academic capacity, speaking only for myself. And uh, as some listeners know, Lee and I have just put out our second edition of National Security Law, our textbook on Canadian national security law. It came out Available in December. Available from Irwin Law. <laughs> right. And it came out in December. And in fact, in the intervening months between the point at which we stopped writing and the point at which it appeared, there have been two federal court decisions in the area of Section 16 of the CSIS Act. So my sole and exclusive task today is just effectively to give you an oral update on the cases involving Section 16. And so for those following along, that's at page 455 of the book. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you. And thank you for that legal disclaimer. And if you are <laughs> following along, you really need to get a life. <laughs> <laughs> never, never for intrepid podcast listeners. And and one of the reasons I wanted to have you back is, of course, that all these recent developments and, and tying into the you know issue of authorities and the director's speech, of course, is our old friend, Bob, Bob from Mordor. He's making his big return. So for new listeners, and that probably means anyone who's listened to this podcast and started listening in the last two years, you have no idea what right. we're talking about. No, <laughs> but but the, you know, I'll, let, let me just set the stage and then we'll reintroduce Bob. So, the CSIS Act, as you know, 
specifies the mandates of the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. And probably the two most famous mandates are what we call Section 12, it's security intelligence function. Uh, and so threats to the security of Canada, and that's a defined term in the CSIS Act. And then uh, one of the other mandates, probably the mandate that is most important for uh, some of the issues that uh, you were talking about in relation to the director's speech is section 16. And section 16 is so-called foreign intelligence. And so this is intelligence, it's not security intelligence that's already covered by section 12, it's foreign intelligence. And really, as you might imagine, foreign intelligence is information that, that, that pertains to a foreign power, foreign person, foreign corporation, so non-Canadians. Now, one of the important distinctions between security intelligence section 12 and section 16 is geography. And so section 12 is without geographic boundaries. So inside or outside Canada, in terms of investigations, the service can lead. Uh, some of us took the view that right from the beginning of the CSIS Act in 84, that was tacit. Uh, there was some doubt about that in the early knots. The legislation was amended in 2015 to clarify that the section 12 investigations could be inside or outside Canada. Section 16, notwithstanding it's called foreign intelligence has a geographic caveat. And so the foreign intelligence activity has to be within Canada, which seems puzzling, but it was very clear at the time the CSIS Act was enacted that parliament was disinclined to give CSIS a roving remit to collect foreign intelligence outside of the country. And that becomes important going forward in terms of these federal court cases. So the issue then, of course, is the CSIS Act dates from 1984. Technology's changed since 1984. We were in an analog era. We're in a digital era. And so- hey, some of us had some pretty cool Texas Instruments computers <laughs> back in the day. All right, fair enough. I just want to say that. <laughs> okay, simpler digital era in 84. And the issue is what sort of- practical constraints now does this legal fetter of within Canada impose on the section 16 foreign intelligence collection activities of, of the service. And so there have been three federal courts cases that in recent times have been asked to opine on this, the probably the best known, and it's now simply been given the nomenclature within Canada case. It's from Justice Noel in 2018. The decision in 2018 was, I think, probably the first publicly available uh, treatment uh, a great length of section 16's uh, geographic fetter and this is where in our discussion which is episode 48 I went back to look at it we discussed this case in the past we invented the character of Bob from Mordor because we came up with a hypothetical trying to describe the sort of factual circumstances where this geographic fetter might be important and to be clear we're talking about redacted versions of the decisions of the federal court. We're not talking about the classified version. So we have no and idea. Can I just also point out that when you say we created, that was you. Like Bob from Mortar was all you. All right, thanks. That was right. So throw me under the bus there. So the the, the Bob from Mortar scenario was really just the, I think the scenario we had was we had a 1990s tradecraft scenario where- Gmail. It was Gmail, which was Bob from Mortar. So that was that was Gondor mail. I think we used Gondor mail, right? So in, in that- It really in that, just went downhill from there. It went downhill from there. So we, we imagine that Bob from Mordor was what are the second secretary of the Mordor embassy in Ottawa. And there was a section 16 investigation and Bob was communicating through Gondor mail and Gondor is outside of Canada. And instead of sending emails that originated in Canada and moved around in Canada, 
they were doing that Dropbox thing where Bob would log on to Gondor Mail and just save a draft of an email. And then I think it was Alice, who was the other threat actor. Alice would log in with the same login credentials and go into the drop Dropbox to see what the saved draft email was. The server and Gondor Mail was outside of the country, right? So was that within Canada for purposes of Section 16? And that was, that was a hypothetical. But the bottom line in the Noel decision was that within Canada means within Canada. And so the scenario that Lee and I talk about in the book, it's hypothetical, is would CSIS violate the within Canada prohibition by copying an email originating in Canada but stored on a foreign server, which is pretty much our Bob from Mordor scenario. And Justice Noel in 2018 said that the Foreign Intelligence Collection Authority of the service under Section 16 is not extraterritorial. And so that would be the sort of circumstance where continuing the investigation would be impermissible. And the Federal Court of Appeal decided not to disturb that decision, albeit because it felt that the evidence before it was not sufficiently informative, that it could opine on, on the grounds of appeal. That is the scope of within Canada. And so they left it hanging. Since then, as I've suggested, there have been two more recent cases, both of which date from 2020. And so the first Justice date from 2020, but came out in the exact same week last week and the week before. Right. <laughs> so the right. Can I just say, and not only came out, but came out the same week that basically they also decided to list the Proud Boys. You know, it's it's been very quiet over here at Intrepid not the same week, the same hour. <laughs> which is why I'm very tired. Oh, yeah. And there was also a decision about the use of artificial intelligence and facial recognition. But from the you know, privacy commissioner, you know, it was, it was a good week for, for everybody. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. So the O'Reilly decision. So the O'Reilly decision doesn't really add much to the Noel conversation, except it's interesting because it provides a little bit more context. And again, this is the public version. And, and this conversation entirely is based on the, the versions of the decisions you can find on Canley or the federal court's website. And so there are redactions in them, but it's worth just rehearsing what's at issue here. And so the issue before O'Reilly was whether section 16 gives lawful authority for CSIS to intercept communications of foreign persons when they are traveling outside of Canada. And specifically, and I'm quoting here, the service seeks an assurance that it has lawful authority to intercept a foreign person's communications from within Canada, even if the foreign person is outside of Canada. Now, the service also indicated, and this again is a quote from the decision, in the absence of clear legal authority permitting the service to intercept a person's communications outside of Canada, the service's current practice is to terminate an interception. And so their operation goes down if it becomes aware that a foreign person has left Canada. All right. And however, if the foreign person has left the country without the service being aware, the interceptions will continue. And so O'Reilly basically said, I'm satisfied that this practice on proposed interceptions by the service will be made within Canada and will comply with the geographical limits on Section 16. And so that's essentially the scope of the conversation in the O'Reilly decision. So correct me if I'm wrong, he's basically saying there could be elements of extraterritoriality to how that information is collected. I don't, I don't know that I would say that he's saying that. I would say that the, the practice that the service has described uh, is within Canada because right. they're confining the Section 16 to within Canada in, in the, a clear sense of the word. Didn't you miss explaining things to me, Craig? <laughs> Le- Leah? However, 
There's no way that you can communicate outside of Canada and not rely on infrastructure that's not extraterritorial. And there would have to be some manner of retrieving the communications or information relying to some extent on telecommunications infrastructure that is outside of this country. Right, because of the nature of the global information infrastructure. Correct. So that then, I think, Craig, then brings us to the second decision, which is Gleason. Yeah, so the Gleason decision is is lengthier in terms of its dealing with the issue of within Canada. And so essentially, this is a repeat of the same considerations that were raised in the Noel decision. And again, we don't know what the techniques are. These, those are subject to redactions. But in this case, the agreed facts were these, that the court can reasonably infer that the collection of information in the manner described in the question before the court will violate foreign domestic and or international law and or the international law principle of non-intervention over the location in which aspects of the collection will occur. And I'm just quoting directly from the public version of the decision. The government though asked the court nevertheless to conclude that the section 16 collection was permitted without regard to whether the information is inside or outside Canada using the proposed method, which is not a method that we know. And that satisfies the within Canada limitation in section 16. And that in fact, the court was empowered under the warrant provision of the CSIS Act in terms of its jurisdiction to authorize CSIS to engage in that activity in violation of foreign and international law. Now, the government's distinction here was to suggest uh, what I would call a from uh, version or from, from concept of collection. So the information or intelligence activity is to be undertaken from within Canada rather than abroad. And that limitation on within Canada in section 16 is satisfied where the collection is taken from within Canada by this, that is the collection activity reaches from Canada. The court disagreed and concluded there was no persuasive interpretive argument advanced in support of the government's position and went on to echo the position taken by Justice Noel in 2018 that Parliament had turned its mind to the question of geography and had it balanced the intelligence and foreign relations considerations to arrive at the existing formula, the within Canada formula, as demonstrated by the lengthy legislative history and did not intend that CSIS's limited foreign intelligence collection mandate would open the door to interpretations permitting covert intelligence operations abroad. So this is an interpretation of what Justice Gleason believes the intent of Parliament was in 1984, that we are just not going to go down this route of collecting information that is outside of Canada for Section 16. Yeah, so the statutory interpretation exercise in Canada, there's an approach one applies. The starting point is the words. Then there's a, a more immediate context of the statute. And then in, certainly in the event of any uncertainty, you can look to the legislative history. And as I read, Justice Gleason concluded that at all three levels within Canada meant within Canada. Within Canada. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, Leah, I'm really itching to get to you on this because you are someone who's thought a lot about data, data in motion, data at rest, and all the, all these kinds of awesome issues. But to me, it seems like there's this issue now that, like, really, it comes down to the fact that at least on these court cases, you have the kind of 1984 version, which is a strict division between within and without. But the, I think the services argument is that, you know, technology has created this space, that the information that you could get in 1984 is now 
you know, they want the same information. So they're not collecting new things, but the way that information is stored has now changed. And so, whereas you might have once at one time targeted, say a tape recording on an answering machine in 1984, which was probably a very cool thing to have back then, you know, with your kind of maybe like Michael Jackson jacket and, and that kind of stuff. Not that old, Stephanie. Parachute pants, parachute pants. And then, uh, but then, uh, you know, you have your answering machine, but then now that same message that would have been stored on a physical tape in 1984 is now stored on a phone and is a component of a phone that then travels with the person as they leave the country. So CSIS may want that same information, but the way it's stored is different. But the courts have effectively said no, because it's outside of Canada. Yeah, and I think the reason for the court saying no is flawed in a couple of respects. Go for Um, it. So let's start with the history. It is true that uh, when establishing the CSIS Act, there were questions about whether or not CSIS would be able to engage in espionage activities abroad. And I quote, the answer was, we don't want CSIS running God knows where doing God knows what. Justice Noel does refer to some of this in his decision, but it's not clear in the legislative history precisely when they're referring to Section 12 and Section 16 in the legislative history. Some of, I think, Justice Noel's original decision, which ultimately gets relied upon by Justice Gleason, does some reading between the lines on that that I don't think is necessarily there. And when you think about the mischief that they were trying to prevent with CSIS agents running all over the world doing whatever, that basically got blown out of the water because we have Section 12 that now allows for CSIS to go over anywhere in the world to collect security intelligence information. And the other related point to that is that Justice Noel and Justice Gleason put a lot of stock in why the fact that Section 12 was changed to read within and outside Canada and Section 16 wasn't. And if you actually go back and look at the history of what the state of the law was and what led for that change, you can see why someone at CSIS or CSIS Legal would think Section 16 need not be changed. Because prior to that, Justice Mosley in in the Diff's Warrants case had said that remote electronic interception of communications abroad fell within the jurisdiction of Section 12 at the time, which did not extend extraterritorially. And he interpreted what CSIS was doing and Canadian jurisdiction to allow for the remote collection of foreign interception or foreign telecommunications and information from within Canada, because his interpretation was that that interception wouldn't really happen until the point at which it was read or listened to. So the state of what did it mean to collect telecommunications and information from outside Canada? Was that permissible? Was that within Canada? The court had interpreted that to fall within within Canada at the time, because prior to that, the court had said, I can't issue you um, authorizations to do that abroad. That would be outside my jurisdiction. It's outside Canada. The law at the time didn't allow for that. Subsequently, CSIS wanted to be able to actually do that kind of interception abroad using foreign agents, using foreign um, partners, and they ultimately did change the legislation to make it very clear that CSIS could engage in intrusive intelligence collection where that was truly abroad, 
not from within Canada. That's why Section 12 was changed, not because CSIS was trying to do remote intelligence collection from within Canada at the time and wasn't able to. They already were able to. They wanted to actually be able to do intelligence collection actually abroad outside of Canada. So the fact that the court then says, well, you didn't change Section 16, but you changed Section 12. Well, at the time, CSIS thought that they could do foreign remote intelligence collection from within Canada, and then that would fall under the domestic jurisdiction. So if I'm understanding you correctly, and God knows I'm, I often do not understand things on this podcast, but what you're basically saying is that the court's understanding of when an interception takes place has changed over time. Well, it, the, that's the funny part is that Justice um, O'Reilly relies on Justice Mosley's reasoning as a way of saying, which was back in the day of saying, you could collect from within Canada stuff that was abroad because the interception wouldn't really happen until you were in Canada. So that's fine. He actually refers to those diffs warrant cases, but Justice Noel and Justice Gleason don't rely on those cases and actually say that they're not helpful. And I think to some extent, because the history of why Section 12 was changed at the time is lost. And if you actually go back and look at the Hansard from the parliamentary debates about when C-44 was introduced and when the addition of within or outside Canada was added to Section 12 and Section 21. And this is about 2014, 2015. Yeah, it was very clear that it wasn't because of not being able to do remote interception from within Canada. They wanted to be able to engage in collection activities outside of Canada. The expectation was at that time that the law already allowed for collection within Canada that was remote. So we've brought up quite a number of cases, and quite frankly, if our if our listeners are, are swimming a bit, I, I I'm sympathetic. I guess. Um, it is okay. complicated. <laughs> it's complicated. You're right. Like this is the problem. Is like in explaining this is that there's layered cases here, right? It's so. I guess you have a decision by Mosley with regards to a lot of these warrants about uh, collecting information overseas. That changes in 2018 with the Noel decision. And now we have these two decisions from O'Reilly and Gleason. These are the four cases that we've looked at. And we have seen this change where you have, particularly Noel 2018 is, is the fundamental case here. And you have a situation where O'Reilly is kind of maybe trimming some of the rough edges around the Noel decision and Gleason, however, is largely adopting Noel, but is kind of massaging maybe some of the 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 yeah the the issues in there. So I guess my question to you is, are these decisions consistent? Because <laughs> there's a lot going on here. I it's hard, it's really hard to tell without understanding the technical aspects that are behind the black. But I think there's a couple of key points here is that when it comes to foreign intelligence collection. Now, according to the federal court, what matters is not where the target of the collection is. It matters where the data is stored. That's the primary issue here. The the legal facts, as Gleason would refer to it in his decision, that matters more, right? Because in O'Reilly, we see the target of the collection being abroad, the collectors being within Canada, and that being okay, collecting, and that being okay, the collection of their communications is fine. 
But in the Noel and the Gleason decision, you seem to have, and we're interpreting here based on reading the tea leaves, a target that's in Canada, a collector who's in Canada. But wherever that data, that information needs to be retrieved from is outside of Canada. And so you have this very weird situation now where the law is being interpreted based on basically the location of the server rather than the target of the intelligence collection because of the nature of how technology works. And I think that's something that could be very easily manipulated by our adversaries. And I think that's really problematic. Right. I mean, this is the concern I've, I've always had about what I, you know, being from Oshawa called the Bob from Mordor cases. The, the idea that foreign adversaries could easily exploit this loophole in terms of conducting their, their operations. I'm concerned that this has been a problem now for three years, at least, and that this is something that seems to be neglected in any kind of national security reform. Now, we've had a lot of elections and a pandemic. I get it. The government's busy. But this seems to be the thing that the director is talking about when he's talking about authority, or at least one of the things. I think there's other authorities that they're interested in in pursuing. So for example, in terms of how they can talk to non-government of Canada partners and things like that. But we'll leave that to aside for now. But with regards to this kind of technical detail, I guess the question I have is, do we need to fix this? I mean, I'm, th I'm thinking yes, but I mean, I, I'm really interested in, on, on what you think about this. So I'll address your question and then I'll also step back and, and look at it from the broader, where are we going with law and cyber and tech and all that kind of question, which is where I spent a lot of my time thinking, yes, we need to address it because otherwise it's too big of a gap. It creates a very big gap in our ability to collect foreign intelligence. How you fix it is very complicated. One could conceivably say that for the purposes of section 16, if we're collecting on the global information infrastructure, it's within Canada, right? But that's, you know, providing kind of a, I think there's a short lifespan on a fix like that because things evolve and change, technology evolves and change. We might have to be tweaking that kind of language increasingly as, as new tech evolves. The alternative is just removing the Women Canada restriction on Section 16. But we do that, we create a foreign intelligence service. Right. That's so a bit of a there's all kinds hammer. of problems there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not. Yeah. And I mean, like, I don't I don't get the impression that CSIS is looking to become the CIA, although I don't know, maybe they are. But I, I don't get that impression. But that's effectively, you know, without proper caveats around that, that's potentially what that could mean. Yeah, it's not an easy fix like we did with Section 12, where we just added within or outside Canada. <laughs> Here, we'd be changing the nature of the agency altogether. Everybody thought that, you know, before CSIS was doing security intelligence abroad, but the court was like, I don't have the jurisdiction to give you a warrant. And they just kind of changed it and they kept doing what everybody thought they were doing anyway. This would actually be changing the nature of the agency and um, what it does. So I think a question in a lot of people's mind is, is, you know, if it, it was the intentional parliament in 1984, to basically split within Canada to CSIS and then give outside of Canada to CSE, then why don't we just have CSE do it? I mean, I think that's what a lot of people would ask. Because the issue now, the gap that exists now, is that a target will be inside Canada, but their data or communications by the court's interpretation is outside of Canada. CSE, yes, can collect information outside of Canada, but they're not allowed to target persons within Canada. 
So this is why there's this massive gap that is created now by reading the, the CSIS Act in this way. There's another really interesting angle to this, and I'll try not to geek out on it too much, but it's how the court relies on international law in these decisions. And, and this, is what it, this the, is one of your big topics of study. Yes. And this is, I think, really fascinating for me because, I mean, Justice Gleason really doesn't engage in an international law discussion. He just states things as if they're fact, where there's really, really nuanced and vibrant debates going on about the issues that he just kind of comes out with the position on. And it's not clear what the arguments of the parties were at all because of the redactions. And it seems to be that the parties just kind of agreed that international law would be violated here. But we have to take a step back and think about what are we talking about when we're talking about international law here? Well, first, they rely on the idea that collecting of information abroad would be a violation of a state's sovereignty, right? So presumably not only violating their sovereignty, but would be an impermissible exercise of Canada's enforcement jurisdiction in a foreign state. Well, if you were talking about, you know, CSIS agents running around in a foreign country doing this, there's really no kind of question about the impermissible exercise of enforcement jurisdiction, but there is still a question at international law if espionage is even illegal, right? Like this is not a said and done debate. Craig and I in our book advance a kind of case-by-case approach to looking at whether or not, yes, espionage per se may not be illegal, but if you break down all of the individual act, like actions, those- There's clearly a crime, act, right? right uh, or an international law violation. But actually when you step back and we're talking about doing these things through cyber means, it's even less clear, right? There is a debate about whether or not even accessing foreign servers is actually a violation of sovereignty. There's like, it's a live debate in international law and not just accessing, but doing anything that falls below anything that creates kind of damage or alters data that has some sort of effect, whether or not that's a violation of sovereignty. There are states that disagree publicly. The United Kingdom says not a violation of sovereignty. So for our courts to just come out and say illegal, right? You're like, whoa, now. Where did this come from? (laughs) Exactly. Like, That would require, one would think, a lot of um, international law evidence (laughs) being put forward or, and it doesn't seem that those questions were engaged in. And the last thing I'll say is that some reason in here, Justice Gleason even raises the idea of whatever CSIS is proposing to do under section 16 could violate the principle of non-intervention. Now, non-intervention is you know, requires various elements, but it's not just going and looking at information or collecting information, right? Um, It has to be basically coercive and it has to actually have some sort of coercive influence on internal or external affairs of a foreign state. And if you look at what CSIS is allowed to do under section 16, all they're allowed to do is collect information. So it's not like CSIS could actually be then using that information to influence a foreign government to do something the government of Canada might, but CSIS isn't. So what's the issue there? And then ultimately, if you look at section 21 of the act, it says CSIS can do foreign intelligence collection, notwithstanding any other law, right? If If their warrant is given to them, they can break laws. And so the court has now said, but that doesn't include 
international law under section 21 when you're talking about 16. Again, where that's coming from, there is like no legal basis for that conclusion anywhere in here. So it's really fascinating to me to see these like major pronouncements on current debates in international law that like lots of people are arguing about across the globe and the court just kind of makes these pronouncements. So that's kind of interesting. So we had not just the pronouncement of what the CSIS Act says, and then there was these kind of certain pronouncements of international law and what is espionage under international law? Would CSIS be breaking international law, which maybe you're clearly taking some issue with here. Um, Well, yeah. And I had like, I had other scholars who study this be like, oh, does that mean that Canada takes this position on this issue in international law? And I'm like, pretty sure the government of Canada is not relying on this decision as their basis for an enunciation of what they believe like international law to be, which they have not said at all. And I keep calling on them to do. So like, it's like, it's a very strange to me, like all of this was like mind boggling and just seems to like portray a lack of real understanding of these nuanced international law issues that the court seems to be basing its decisions on. So I, I, I mean, we should state that I believe the Gleason case is now under appeal, if I'm not mistaken. So maybe some of these issues are going to come up and, and maybe CISA should hire you to do that. If, 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 the, if that's the case, that's some really The court can arguments. just cite my book. That's just cite your book. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but that, that's actually what matters in our business. And, is and the Stephanie, citation. The, the international law discussion is at page 263 to 66 and 277 to 78. I'm okay. Listeners, I hope you're taking notes. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll try and put that in the, in the show notes for everybody. <laughs> Look, I mean, this has been a really useful discussion of where we are with our, our friend, Bob from Mordor, who's probably pretty happy right now. You didn't even get, let me get started on the real and substantial connection test and how it was improperly done after statutory interpretation. If we want to go super nerdy, Steph. Okay, so that sentence just listening. blew my mind. Um, <laughs> the, um, we will, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to have a podcast where you explain what those words mean individually to me <laughs> in a podcast, because there is a lot to unpack here. But look, actually, I think that's a good thing because I think the key thing is here, at least from my perspective of just kind of scholar who's trying to keep up is is the fact that you do have a director who's now made a kind of public plea for help. I don't don't want to call it a cry for help, but it's basically calling for a national debate on what CSIS's authority should be in light of all these new kind of threats that he's talking about or, or evolving threats. You know, I always say you can't have a national security document in Canada that doesn't have the word fluid environment in it. But, but to some ex- ex- extent, that is true. So I want to thank you for walking us through those two issues. But the good news is for anyone whose mind was just kind of blown by that discussion is that we now have a new resource for you that has come out. We are introducing, and this is the plug part of the show, Intrepid University. And Craig um, as bye-bye. dean, <laughs> exactly. And Craig as dean of Intrepid University. Would you like to introduce to our listeners what you you have started? Yeah, actually, two two public service announcements. So the first thing is, I noted at the outset, uh, Lee and I are going to do our best to keep the book up to date, and the platform for that will actually be the Intrepid blog. So intrepidpodcast.com. We'll have there's a menu item called Legal Explainers, and we're just going to park updates that are cross-referenced to the appropriate chapter and page number in the book, like the one we've just discussed, that's update on section 16 right there. 
So we'll try to keep it a, a living book. Makes it easier also to do the third edition when it comes out. The, We're not going to wait 12 years or whatever for that one. Yeah, there were other things that happened in between, but yes, you're right. So the second public service announcement is, yes. So as probably listeners know, many of us in the post-secondary sector have been rethinking education in the COVID era and subdividing our traditional courses between what we're now calling asynchronous and synchronous content. So asynchronous will be passive learning, lecture-like material. The synchronous is the in-classroom. And, and for many of us, that's now active learning based. And so it's in the case, Lee and I, in the course we teach in each, each of our institutions and in national security law, it's scenario-based role-playing, applied law, operational law, and national security. But in order to support that synchronous content, we've created video modules that are built around the same structure as our book. And so they follow the chapter pattern. And while it doesn't obviously go into the same detail as the book, we hit what we think are the most salient legal issues. And we do an explainer so we can do diagrams and charts and flow charts and schematics of various sorts to assist learning. What we've now done is we've decided that we're taking that asynchronous material that we prepared for our courses and we're, we're making it public facing. So I have created a mini course on national security law that uses the material that Lee and I prepared, again, built around the structure of our book and built it into a fairly sophisticated learning management system. I've set the price to free and people can enroll uh, and simply follow along with the, the, with the video modules. Uh, and so that's what we call our first mini course. Whether we take it a step further and start talking about doing advanced courses that have exercises built in, mini quizzes, one of my favorite tools now is a choose your own adventure sort of cyber tool that allows you to make decisions. And depending on your decision, you're, you're actually on, on side the law or offside the law. Uh, so there are various things we're thinking about doing, but right now the, at least the basic primer is up. We'll make that hyperlink available right on intrepidpodcast.com for people who are interested in, in participating in that course. And it's just a simple registration. You can use whatever email you want and off to the races. Well, and would, my mom was a guinea pig. So if she can do it, anyone can do it. I was going to say, it would probably teach you more about law than what I've learned in something 150 something podcasts. <laughs> well, it's another way you can learn law too. There's more structure. <laughs> it's a little, a little less street law, a little more structure. <laughs> Guys, that's awesome. So I hope everyone... Uh, checks out Intrepid U. It's uh, you know, a resource out there for people who do want to have a little bit better understanding. Can we of get national... hoodies? <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm all for swag. I'm all we for swag. swag. We had pens. We, 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 we pens. had uh, we did have pens. Coasters. We had coasters. I want hoodies. You know, it, it, it's, it's uh, really what we need is, is drinking glasses for the intelligence evidence problem. That's, that's the future <laughs> marketing for Intrepid. But for now, please enjoy our free resources. And if you like us, you can always subscribe and rate and review and tell us that you, you like what we do and feel free to email us some suggestions. So guys, thank you so much. Thank you for putting this awesome course together. Thanks, Thanks very much, Jeff. both. Cheers. <laughs>